welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. For this year's Summer Solstice episode, I'm speaking with John O'Keefe, a recently retired forest ecologist and coordinator of the Fisher Museum at the Harvard Forest in Petersham, Massachusetts. It's a museum of forest history and ecology that aims to explain the complex history of the New England landscape. Today, John is going to take us on a journey through the woods at Solstice, highlighting the magnificence of New England's forests and the challenges they face. Here he is. John O'Keefe, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to it. What inspired you to become a forest ecologist? Well, I took a fairly circuitous route to becoming a forest ecologist. I had an undergraduate, I majored in sociology at Harvard College, and then graduated in 67 and faced the Vietnam War and joined the Peace Corps, spent time in Lesotho in South Africa, came back a bit early because my dad was dying, but still was facing the draft and managed to be accepted into a pilot training program in the Massachusetts Air National Guard. And so through the much of the 1970s, for six years, I spent flying over New England and I had always been interested in nature, walking in the woods and looking down, flying around. I saw that New England was almost all forest and decided that it would be interesting to learn more about those forests. When I was done, I actually took a bunch of courses through Harvard Extension in biology and then was accepted into a master's and then a PhD program in forest ecology at UMass in Amherst. You have been working on this leaf emergence and flowering study <laughs> for over 30 years, which is amazing. Describe what that study is all about and what you've observed over the last 30 years. Shortly after I started working at Harvard Forest, I was sort of looking for a way to get myself out on a regular basis, walking through the forest and tried to come up with a research project that might involve that. And as a grad student at the University of Massachusetts, I had helped one of my advisors set up a study on one of the University of Massachusetts forests to observe the timing of leaf emergence on deciduous trees and also the time of leaf senescence and drop. And senescence means the basically dying of the leaves on deciduous trees in the fall, preparing to go dormant for the winter. So the tree or shrub essentially shuts down, stops photosynthesizing, goes through a process where the leaves form a abscission layer or a 
surface at the base of the leaf where the bud for the next year's leaf is developed. And then as the fall progresses, the leaves change color and drop off, which of course is our fall foliage season, which is a major event across this part of Massachusetts. It's part of this annual cycle of leaf emergence and growth in the spring, growth through the summer, and then as the days shorten and it gets colder, the plants prepare to go dormant for the winter. And I mentioned mountain laurel being an evergreen broadleaf tree or shrub, and we are right near the northern range limit of both mountain laurel and all of the other rather taller evergreen broadleaf plants because they can't survive when it gets too cold. Those of you who might have uh, rhododendrons in your yard may notice that on those really cold winter days, the leaves of the rhododendron are really tightly curled up to try and expose the minimum amount of surface to the sun because there is no moisture available for photosynthesis because the ground is frozen. And it's basically the lack of moisture. The the cold creates essentially a lack of available moisture in the winter. So the plants, that's their way to Hmm. shut down for the winter. The evergreen trees have much less surface area and another sort of way of protecting themselves. The needles are able to, again, largely shut down the attempt of photosynthesis during the winter. They have sort of an antifreeze system. What have you observed over these many decades? Interestingly, not much change. I have observed a huge amount of year-to-year variation. And when I started in uh, 1990, I wasn't really thinking that I was a going to be focusing on a a climate change study. But over the 30 years, because the timing of these events, the leaf out and the leaf color and drop in the fall, are controlled by climate. It's part of an area of science called phenology, which is the timing of biological events that are driven by climate. So these events such as leaf emergence, leaf senescence, migration, hibernation, all of these that are ultimately biological events driven by climate are seen as ways to look for the impacts of climate change. So after five or 10 years, the study became of more interest because of its potential to record changing climate. And so I started you know, focusing a little bit more on that aspect of it rather than just observing what was happening. And that, I think, is actually why I, I wanted to do it. I wanted to have a, a good reason to get out and wander around. It's always the set path through the forest because I'm looking at the same trees year to year, but I hadn't put it in that really larger context initially. Uh, It was probably more to get myself to look closely 
and analyze the trees in this process of leaf emergence, especially, which although I had, you know, done a lot of work working in the woods on the university forest for my dissertation, you don't look that closely at every tree. And so having initially, I started with over 30 species that I was tracking on about a weekly basis through the spring and then in the fall, I learned a tremendous amount about how each of the species went through this process of leaf emergence, depending on the the type of bud and how the bud expanded and where when it flowered, where the flower appeared, timing of both flowering and then, uh, you know, fruit development, seed development over the course of the growing season. So, you know, that was sort of my initial focus. But then over time, with the increasing awareness of how the climate was changing, it became also a, a study to look at how that might be affecting the timing of the growing season, uh, the leaf emergence and the senescence in the fall. And at times, it has appeared that, well, the growing season has been getting longer in my observations. And there are many other now observations done both around the world and across North America, both with citizen observations, citizen and, and scientist observations, but also using satellite imagery and what are now called phenocams, which are basically surveillance cameras looking out at a forested landscape and hmm. using the changes in the color recorded by those cameras to track leaf emergence and then leaf color change and senescence in the fall and drop. But those are really definitely showing changes in climate. My study actually has not shown a significant change in spring leaf out. What kinds of major changes have New England's forest experienced since you started working as a forest ecologist? Well, actually, since I've been a forest ecologist, the major changes that the forests have experienced have largely been driven by pests and pathogens and mostly introduced ones. Of course, the other change that the forest is experiencing sort of with pulses is clearing for development. That that really is a function of how the economy seems to be doing at a given time. We went through a big burst, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, and it slowed down and was beginning a little bit. But the biggest change right now is introduced pests and pathogens, major ones being the hemlock woolly adelgid, which sort of was coming through southern and central New England starting in the late 1980s to the current time. And then in the last decade or so, it has been the emerald ash borer two insect pests. The hemlock woolly adelgid kills hemlock trees by inserting a stylet feeding tube into the base of the needles and sucking out the photosynthate so the tree doesn't get it. The needles die, fall off, and the tree eventually succumbs to not having enough food produced. The emerald ash borer is an introduced boring insect that 
bores through the stem of the tree and lays eggs in galleries and that prevents the movement of sap and food up and down in the tree and it essentially girdles the tree and it also weakens the tree and the tree dies from lack of function. When I first started my research at the University of Mass, we were in the middle of a major gypsy moth outbreak in the end of the 1970s and early 80s. So we had three or four years of extreme defoliation of the oaks in our area, which caused a large amount of mortality. Gypsy moth was introduced to Massachusetts in the 1860s and since then has gone through cycles of sort of eruption, major damage, and then kind of slowing down a lot. There have been a couple of attempts to control it with fungus and a virus, and these have had some effect, but they're somewhat weather dependent on how their effect acts on the insects or the caterpillars. And so when the weather conditions aren't conducive to developing the fungus and virus, we tend to go into another small outbreak. We had a, an outbreak three and four years ago now in central mass that seems to have dropped down again. It's still around. It hasn't been as bad as it was in the early 80s since then. But the hemlock woolly adelgid has definitely largely eliminated hemlocks across much of southern New England. The adelgid is as introduced to North America from Asia, has some cold tolerance limitations. So very cold snaps in the winter can kill almost all of the adelgids, not all, but almost all. And then it can take quite a while for them to build up again after that. So that has really reduced its spread or the rate of its spread into northern or north central and northern New England. But we you know, exacerbated by a warming climate, we haven't been getting those cold snaps in southern New England. And so that has allowed it to gradually keep moving, moving north. And it's been at Harvard Forest for oh, a couple of decades at this point. And we have a major hemlock area in the center of one of our main tracks at Harvard Forest. And we're, we're tracking the impact of the adelgid as it kills the hemlock trees. And what we're seeing is that as the hemlock trees die, they're generally replaced by black birch. Hmm. There's black birch, some black birch in almost every hemlock stand. It's the major associate with hemlock in our forests in this region. And it seems very adept at, as the canopy thins and more light reaches the floor of the forest, then the birch seedlings take advantage and get established. And as the hemlock gradually die, the birch come in. And what we don't know is whether that's a temporary transition and the birch will gradually be replaced or whether the birch will form another forest for a period of time, more or less as a single species. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that, you know, Hemlock and black birch are extremely different species. One is a conifer that has needles that are very acidic and very slow to decompose and forms a dense, deep litter layer on the forest floor, builds up a lot of stored carbon. Black birch 
has very rapidly decomposing leaves that drop every fall, but then decompose so it doesn't build up that litter layer. So the whole ecosystem in these forests changes as that transition occurs from hemlock to black birch. That is very interesting. You had mentioned when we had spoken previously that the hemlock groves in the Harvard forest are dangerous places to walk now. It used to be that there were trails going through that area, but now that the hemlocks are dying, there are hazards above. Right, right. And in fact, you know, my trail that I, my phenology uh, observations actually goes through the hemlock stand and I'm very careful walking. In fact, we had a research project that we would sometimes bring visitors out to see and talk about the hemlock changing, the forest changing, and you know, hard hats are required for visiting that part of the forest because of the danger of falling branches. And you know, if it's very windy, you could even get occasional trees coming over. So that trail, which was one of our major interpretive nature trails, has been moved. And so it's no longer part of our visitor experience at Harvard Forest. Hmm. We explain it in other ways. You mentioned that you have some citizen science projects. And did you say that you have one that's tracking the woolly adelgid through New England? Yes. Yeah, we have actually three major citizen science projects, one of which is based on my phenology study where we have schools and teachers and students across southern New England, even down into New York City. We have a teacher who are observing the timing of leaf emergence and leaf drop in a protocol that's largely based on my study at Harvard Forest. Another is tracking where they have hemlock trees available near the school site, looking at the presence or absence of the woolly adelgid. And then once it is there, tracking its development and impact on the hemlocks. And in fact, several of the schools that have been doing this over almost 20 years of the study have had the hemlocks on their school site be infected by the adelgid. Hmm. The adelgid has arrived and is now starting to affect those trees. Whereas when the project was started, I think there were only one or two sites where the adelgid was present. I see. And the third is actually setting up plots, 10 meter by 10 meter plots on the forest adjacent to the school or that the school has access to and measuring the trees on an annual or every second or third year basis to have the students observe how the forest is growing and changing over time. How can other schools get involved? They should go to the Harvard Forest webpage and look for a section on it called Schoolyard Ecology. There's a link on our webpage how to get more information to try and start one of these projects in your local school. We've had thousands of students involved over the nearly 20 years and hundreds of teachers. On the webpage, you can see the map of involved schools and you know what projects they're working on and for how long. 
Many of our listeners are nature lovers who enjoy springtime in New England's forests in the summertime. What kinds of things should they be on the lookout for around solstice? We're recording this a little bit before solstice, but right now what's happening is that the forest in the past week and a half, the leaves have emerged and are now rapidly growing. And by the solstice, they will be pretty much at their full size. What's happening also right now is that our wind-pollinated species and most of our forest trees are wind-pollinated. And for those of us who have seasonal allergies, that's fairly <laughs> obvious. Right now, we're recording here at the sort of third week in May. And the oaks are in flower and the birches have just finished flowering. And in a week or so, by early June, the pines will be shedding their pollen. Pines don't flower in the technical sense. But right now, my car, each morning when I go out to it, I have to run the windshield wipers to clear <laughs> off the pollen that has settled on the windshield overnight. So the car is sort of covered in this yellow-green dust. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's one of the important things that happens. And we, we actually often don't think of our trees and forests as flowering because they are wind-pollinated. We notice the apple trees and the, quote, flowering trees like the mountain laurel or shrubs like mountain laurel I mentioned and the cherries, uh, black cherry. But all of the trees do flower and pollinate. And because it's wind pollinated, we don't often think of the flowers as flowers per se, but in fact they are. And that's one of the things that, you know, I've really gotten into observing as part of my phenology study is I've, I've really noticed a lot more detail about this whole process of the leaves emerging and then the flowers emerging on some species. In fact, several species, the, the flowers emerge before the leaves to facilitate the transfer of pollen with the leaves not getting in the way. Doesn't matter for insect pollinated species, but for wind pollinated species, it's actually beneficial to have the pollen moving from the male to the female flowers without leaves getting in the way to get a, a trap the pollen. But the, the timing actually, to my mind, one of our most interesting trees is striped maple, which is a tall shrub, short tree, and it has a very interesting emergence. It has just two leaf scales. They split and then an inner covered part of the leaves, another scale starts to grow out. It grows about an inch and a half and then it splits and the leaves pop out. And if it is going to flower, if it's getting enough nutrients and sunlight to flower, it then has a hanging group of flowers that emerge at the same time as the leaves. The leaves are very small then, so it's easier for it to pollinate. And striped maple is very interesting because it actually has two genders. There are male plants and female plants, but that is more of a timing sequence. When the tree or shrub starts to flower, it typically flowers male. 
as it reaches maturity it, and is about to die, it shifts and flowers female and produces seed for several years. And then typically the plant dies. It's capable of surviving as a very small plant with two or four leaves for several decades in the understory, waiting for enough light to start growing and flowering and then going through that flower cycle. So it's one of the things that I really enjoyed learning as I started studying my phenology of the forest. What's your favorite thing about the forest around solstice? Oh, the fact that it, you know, it's it's just getting really vibrant and green and the trees are basically just fully leafed out. And so they're, you know, at maximum growth and maximum photosynthesis actually Right around then, early to mid-June, the red maples are dropping their seeds. And so this year is actually a really big seed year for red maples in, in our area. And so the trees are just loaded with these red, you know, what people think of as helicopters. It's interesting that the red maple seed drops in June and germinates over the summer and the sugar maple seed develops all summer into the fall and then is dropped in the fall and sits on the forest floor and germinates in the spring. Similarly, the oaks, the red oaks, and there are a group of oaks, red oak, black oak, scarlet oak, that are in the red oak group. And their acorns fall in the fall, sit on the ground, and then germinate, and they're actually just germinating now. And where hmm. you last year was an incredibly big red oak acorn year as well. And so we have lots of little acorns germinating red oaks right now with the first leaves just emerging. The white oaks actually drop their acorns in the fall and they a little earlier and they germinate in the fall and actually are there as little seedlings in the spring already. What do you hope your work does to inspire people to enjoy forests everywhere? Well, I hope that, you know, by thinking about what, what I've done and, and my uh, sort of route into studying the forest and phenology, it will encourage other people just to get out and look at the forest around them, the trees and plants around them, and actually look for the changes that are happening. I know, you know, growing up, I spent a lot of time in the forest and was somewhat aware of what was happening, but not really focused on it at all. And I think that the more you can try and get yourself to look at it in a closer way, focus on, on a couple of trees, maybe uh, track when the leaves emerge in the spring and when they senesce and change coloring, drop off in the fall, 
get a much better appreciation of what's really happening in, in nature around you. I just think it, you know, it's it's fascinating. And I think that it's really a good way to get people to relax a little bit more and think about, you know, what's really happening in the world around them and maybe a little less focused on the news that you're bombarded with every day because that can be pretty depressing and really enjoying what's happening, even if it may be buggy, <laughs> is really a, a good way to feel better. John O'Keefe, thank you so much for being here. This has been really fun. No, thanks for having me and I've really enjoyed it and hope other people do too. Today's HMSC Connects podcast was produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and edited by Emma Knudsen. Special thanks to the Harvard Forest and to John O'Keefe for his wisdom and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy solstice. See you in a couple of weeks.